Hello, everybody. Welcome to the weekly show. My name is Ryan Polly. You know, on GodsPlanForAll.com, it defines the Trinity as the belief in one God, yet confusingly and illogically maintaining that this is this one God is in effect three co-equal gods, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this also goes along to sometimes the challenge that we get of this like, well, do you believe Jesus is God and the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God? Well, you got three gods. Christian, why can't you do math? One plus one plus one equals not one. It's three. And so these are just some of the basic objections that we may find as we try to figure out this Christian idea of understanding how scripture has revealed God to us and Christianity believing in the doctrine of the Trinity. One of the most important doctrines that we can understand as we try to understand who God is, yet also can be one of the most confusing. And sometimes we have difficulty and so maybe we leave it off to the side. And so my goal in our conversation today is to really think deeply about who God is, gain a better understanding of the Trinity, uh, how scripture reveals it, learn how to respond to some of the common objections that you're gonna see online so that you can faithfully live out as Christian ambassadors in today's culture. And so to help me do that is Dr. Fred Sanders. He is a professor of systematic theology at Biola. He is the associate director of the Tories Honor Program at Biola. And so Dr. Sanders, Thank you so much for coming on and helping us understand the Trinity. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Absolutely. So uh, let's just start off right off the bat. Um, the Trinity. How important is it when it comes to Christian doctrines? Yeah, uh, it, well, it's it's very important. It's the Christian doctrine of God. And so um, uh, I think it's easy to see that uh, a religion like Christianity, it's going to be a claim about what salvation is and who God is. And um, so it's just absolutely foundational to, to get this correct and to accurately reflect back to God theologically what he's made known about himself um, in the Bible. And so as you kind of have taught this subject, and right, this is your specialty, so you have your PhD in systematic theology, but your specialty is in the Trinity. How have you found that Christians in general, as you teach this to college students at Biola and around the country and, and you know, maybe even at, at Talbot, uh, how do people understand the Trinity? Do people generally have a good understanding with this being one of the central core teachings of Christianity? Or is there some work that we needs to be done in getting a better understanding of who God is? Yeah, I mean, big picture, um, the broad Christian tradition around the world and down through the centuries has a, a wonderful convergence point on this doctrine, um, you know, that that there is exactly one God and that that one God eternally exists and therefore reveals himself as uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, when you go beyond that, of course, I'm a professional warrior. So um, when I think about the state of a doctrine in the churches uh, at large, of course, I only have experience of a couple thin little slices of particular churches in my particular context. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I could be concerned that if you were to Socratically question most pastors, never mind most believers without extensive mm -hmm. theological training, if you were to um, sort of treat them as a hostile witness and Socratically examine them about what they think is going on with the doctrine of the Trinity, um, that you might be able to lead them into saying things that were heresies on one side or the other, either modalism, that God is really unitarian, unipersonal, one God in one person, but pretends to be three or manifests himself as three, even though he's not or something like that. Yeah. Or on the other side, um, tritheism or more likely subordinationism, that there's one real God, that's the father. And then Jesus is like, the son is like sub God or deputy God, or, you know, uh, has the honorific title of God or something like that. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's why I kind of I labeled this video like, you know, understanding the Trinity and avoid heresy. Um, how, how common is it for you to see uh, Christian pastors and Christians online and blogs, just kind of on social media, uh, saying things about God that is actually heretical, false views of God, when trying to accurately tell people about who God is? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I'm listening critically, um, I, I hear lots of sort of false notes and, and misleading ways of putting things. Um, I will say, y you really have to kind of try to be heretical. Um, you know, we can talk about someone accidentally saying something wrong and being heretical, but I try to hold off on that judgment. I think you have to kind of have your eyes wide open, acknowledge what the central Christian teaching has always been, and then intentionally say, I am teaching another thing. So one example, and I'm sure we can get to this later on, but um, one example I give is that you can hear people praying, um, and there's something tacky about critically judging somebody's prayer, right? Um, <laughs> but as a theologian, I, I can't help it. I, I hear sentences exactly. with nouns and verbs come out, and I have to think about them and assess them, <laughs> even if I'm praying along with a Christian brother or sister in order to say amen when they're done. Yeah. When I hear them say something like, Father, thank you for loving us so much you died on the cross to save us, I think, hmm, that's a terrible sentence because the father did not die on the cross. Or if they pray, Jesus, thank you that you loved us so much. You sent your son to save us. I think, okay, um, that that gets an F. Like as a, as a doctrinal statement, the prayer I just heard gets a score of F. Like <laughs> revise and resubmit. That was wrong. Um, now, as a spiritual action, I think that person probably has better theology than they put into words. Right. Yeah. And I can I can cut them some slack or listen charitably and say, Actually, something beautiful might have just happened here. That that Christian might have begun approaching God and in their mind and in their spirit started with a meditation on the Father and then moved over to start meditating on the work of the Son. And they just didn't restart or upgrade their sentence as their mind moved along. They might have been on some beautiful spiritual itinerary um, around the work of the Trinity. Notice I'm not giving any slack to the sentence itself. I will always grade that sentence F if you say the Father died on the cross or Jesus sent his son to save us. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't jump in and uh, I wouldn't blow a whistle, say everybody out of the pool. That was a heretical prayer. The person who <laughs> said it is a heretic. Um, I don't think that's what's happening there. Um, yeah. It needs cleanup, but I wouldn't want to use the H word right there. Yeah. So maybe already stepping into some practical advice. Uh, what would you say to someone and what would you do? Uh, how would you clean that up? You obviously wouldn't like stop them mid prayer and go heresy, but would you pull them aside <laughs> afterwards and kind of explain it? Or, or is that something, it's such a minor slip up that you kind of just let it go and don't worry about it. No, it, I mean, it, it could use correction. Um, uh, and, and, you know, you would find the appropriate, the socially and interpersonally and pastorally appropriate time to do that. Um, you know, playing for the long game. If somebody prayed something really terrible in the congregation, you might have to worry about um, collateral damage to bystanders, right? Like, Oh no, a hundred people just heard that. <laughs> but if what you're looking at is what does that person believe? This is where a tool that I get to use all the time in Tory Honors College in teaching undergrads, um, the great books, uh, is really handy. And that is Socratic questioning. Yeah. Um, in Plato's dialogues, Socrates uses his, you know, trademark kind of questioning for a lot of purposes. Um, sometimes it's to show people they don't know what they're talking about. And that has its own value. But often it's to draw somebody's mind out to the broader truth of what they're saying. And so I might question that person Socratically and say, um, you thanked Jesus for sending his son. Um, tell me what you believe about the son of Jesus. And as soon as you reflected back to him, they'd say, oh, 
Thank you, Socrates. I now see that I don't know what, like what I said <laughs> isn't what I actually believe, because here's what I do believe. I think that if you prompted them with the right set of questions from the right angles, they've probably got, I mean, I'll just say it this way. They've probably got the basics of the doctrine of the Trinity properly stocked in their head, because the basics are actually pretty basic. It really is. There is exactly one God, if we're talking about the divine essence, like what's the divine essence? The that through which God is God. Yeah. <laughs> like it's Godness, Godhood. Um, there's exactly one of those, we're monotheists, and there are three who have that essence, uh, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And those okay. three are related to each other in specifiable, non-reversible ways. The Father is Father of the Son and not vice versa. Yeah. So one of the, I guess, the uh, objections that I that I hear, and by the way, we're going to be, I, I am going to be taking your your questions, and um, I, I found a lot of objections online, ones that I've heard as well as the ones that I found online, because I think as, as we go through these objections, not only will we hear the biblical scriptural response to those objections and learn what the Trinity and who God really is, but also learn how to respond to these objections when they come up ourselves. And then really at the end, looking at the practical, why is this uh, doctrine important to get right, and how that affects our everyday life and knowing and understanding God. So um, this idea of the father and the son, um, one of the objections that came in is like, well, how is this possible? Because if they're equal, uh, you don't have a father and son. What does it mean to have father if he's not truly a father and son if he's not truly a son, if they're co-eternal into the past? Yeah, that's a good question. I have to kind of sort that out where that question's coming from. But um, the claim is that the eternal relation, father, the, the first person and second person, stand in with regard to each other. Notice I just jumped to absolutely unbiblical language for the sake of clarity, right? Like, well, since we're going to dispute about the nature of fatherhood and sonship, I need to not use those words. So I will use abstract mathematical language, the first person, the second person. <laughs> in some sense, I'm moving up to the safety of higher ground, but it's also very abstract and you can't find a single verse in the Bible that will help you with that way of talking, right? Um, what is the, the eternal relation between those two is that one is eternally from the other. He stands in a relation of a principled thing to its principle. Um, and so uh, what, what's revealed is uh, the father, uh, God, the father is father of God, the son. Okay. So, I mean, I, I think that Christians might start to already hear this conversation and immediately go, okay, this seems over my head, right? The, this, the statement that, that I made at the beginning from the website saying this is, you know, confusingly and illogically trying to understand something. Um, how easy is it to, I mean, to explain, to comprehend? Do we, do we, can we actually master this? Or is this something that we go, man, we will never fully understand it and let's get a basic understanding and move along? Yeah. Um, so, we can understand what God has made known about himself. Um, uh, so on the one hand, the, we can't comprehend anything about God, right? We can't comprehend in the sense of absolutely master the knowledge of it. Like we can make clear um, statements about it, but that's not the same as like, oh, now it's in my mind. I totally have a mental model of it that is adequate to the thing itself. But that kind of comprehensive knowledge is the kind of thing we don't have in in uh, any theological statements about God himself. But you want to avoid the sleight of hand here. You can, it's one thing to say God's a mystery. It's another thing to say my sentences about God are incoherent, right? You don't want to let God's infinite mysteriousness uh, give you the excuse theologically of making 
unclear or um, uh, incoherent statements about mm. God. So what we want is clear and um, um, coherent statements about the incomprehensible, mysterious God. In that way, the doctrine of the Trinity is no different from any other doctrine about God. And I say that to sort of set your expectations. So if I say you can understand the Trinity, um, that is true. I can make a statement of the doctrine of the Trinity that is coherent and, and can be understood. Um, but some people will then immediately assume that that means, so this will be something rationally demonstrable from just the principles of reason. It, it'll be like geometry. Like once you show me a geometric proof, now I can work it. And it's the kind of thing that any properly reasoning human ought to be able to just walk out in the morning and begin thinking rightly and get to the conclusion of the Trinity. And that's where I'd want to say, well, you got to manage your expectations here. This is a revealed doctrine um, that uh, cannot be proven without appeal to revelation. Yeah. So how could we then, using the revelation that we have, give a I guess, a clear understanding, because I, I think that we often try to explain it, and we'll get to these probably here in a little bit, is that we often try to use analogies that, that mm. all lead to heresy. And so uh, how can we give a clear and accurate uh, explanation of the Trinity, let's say to, to high school or college students, or maybe even our kids, um, to, to help them understand who God is and how three persons can be in one being, yet at the same time mm. remain biblically faithful? Yeah. Yeah, so there are several roads in from the biblical revelation. Um, probably the, the main road is to um, begin with reflecting on the identity of Jesus Christ. Um, this really stands or falls with the deity of Christ. Um, if someone rejects the doctrine of the Trinity because they don't think Jesus is God, I think, oh, well, great, that, that logically follows. Of course, if you don't think Jesus is God, you're yeah. not going to do the work of believing the doctrine of the Trinity. That's a that's 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 a well matching set of beliefs there, yeah. um, or if someone rejects the doctrine of the Trinity because they think, oh, Jesus is God. In fact, He is God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's who Jesus is. And I think, oh, well, again, you know, that's wrong. But it's a well matched set of beliefs. If you deny personal distinction within the one God, then of course you would deny the Trinity. Mm-hmm. But having considered those two sort of opposite errors. Um, if you affirm that there is one God and that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Spirit is God, then you are affirming the doctrine of the Trinity at the fundamental level, conceptually. Um, and then it's just a matter of sort of adequately explaining how those terms relate to each other. Yeah. So to get to the doctrine of the Trinity um, at that level, I would say something like when Jesus Christ uh, came to be God with us, title given to him in Matthew 1, um, he was the son sent from the father he was god with us as god the son sent from god the father well you can reflect on that relationship between the sending god and the sent god who are the same god but are not the same person mm-hmm. now i'm gonna leave the holy spirit out of it for a minute just to get clear on this same but different right you can solve the same but different kind of conceptual issue with only two terms um, so it can simplify things to set the holy spirit aside for a minute and I have, I have explanations for why that's okay, mm-hmm. and that doesn't make the Holy Spirit mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, this is the main reason is that um, John's Gospel starts this way, when it says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." It's this was and was with, right? That gives you some kind of what's the relationship between God and the Word? It's, it's a relation of identity, 
and it's also a relation of um what do you want to call that withness um distinction and relation right these two are um in some way the same and in some way different there's no technical terminology there in john one it's just word was god and the word was with god now um so my name's fred my dad's name was fred my son's name is fred my website is fredfredfred.com um there's nothing especially trinitarian about that in fact it's not very trinitarian at all it's just easy to remember if i had my son fred with me here i could uh bring him into the camera shot and say look fred is with fred and you'd say yeah that's right but then if i said and fred is fred you'd think that's weird is your son okay with the way you just like stole his identity <laughs> um but then i could i could push my son out of the camera and say look fred is fred and then if i said and fred is with fred then you'd wonder about my abnormal psychology you know, mm -hmm. am I am I beside myself? So what's going on there is I am I am myself and I am also in relation to one who is not myself. Uh, there's unity and distinction happening. Um, but uh, between me and other Fred's in the room with me, we have to work those out in different terms. Somehow what's going on in God, as John one points out, is both unity and distinction in the same God and his word relation. Now, again, I've used no technical language there. Um, you kind of go around and around that block that John 1 gives you, right? Um, wait, the word was with God, the word was God, the word was with God, the word was God. You think through enough times that you say, I think it would be helpful if I had some terms here to kind of nail this down so I don't get dizzy running around and around this word was with God, word was God. Well, those terms that capture the unity and the distinction um, are pretty likely to be the traditional terms of unity of essence, distinction of person. Um, that is the way in which the word was, was God, that is, has the divine essence, but was with God, that is, is a person in relation to another person. So, and, and just, we want to make sure that when we talk about this unity, um, one of the, you know, the heresies is, is this idea that uh, they are, you know, one in purpose, right? You have like the three branches of the government all working together as one government. Uh, that's not the unity we're talking about. The one in oh yeah right that that doesn't um it's a matter of sort of like did you did you rise to the level um that would count as real unity um enough to satisfy the monotheistic standards of the first 39 books of the bible that is to say yeah. most of the bible yeah yeah that's good yeah. okay i've so been on i've been on committees and there's not much very divine about them <laughs> so uh, yeah um all right so what are like the main objections that i brought at the beginning is just this idea of one plus one equals Three. Uh, one plus one plus one yeah. equals three. Uh, how would you uh, help someone respond to this objection uh, that, no, we're saying one plus one plus one somehow equals one still? Yeah, that's good. So sometimes you hear the doctrine of the Trinity described as um, believing in God as three in one. Um, and I think that's correct, but it, it leaves out the nouns, right? And, and to leave out the nouns is sometimes to invite misunderstanding um, because three and one with no nouns provided could mean three gods in one God uh, or three persons in one person. Well, right. both of those would be clear errors, um, not the content of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. Three persons in one God um, is clearer and safer. So again, you know, we sing a couple of songs at my church are, you know, we believe in God who's three and one. Again, I don't blow a whistle and say, sorry, not clear enough. We need to add the nouns back in. Um, 
but you can see how the shorthand can be misleading sometimes. Um, if everyone constantly had in mind that the doctrine teaches that God is three persons in one being, they wouldn't get tripped up by the math part because you wouldn't expect one plus one plus one does in fact equal three persons. But we're not claiming God is one person. Right. We're claiming God is three persons in one God. Um, so, so how helpful is it? Because I know, like, I've heard you say, like, you know, we, we use analogies to describe the Trinity, but then we go, but the God isn't really like that. And so we, we keep kind of using these ways of try to say God is like this, but then at the same time saying he's not like that. So one thing I, I, I do sometimes, and because I, I think it helps in some sense, is it's to, to get that distinction of persons and beings. It's like, well, there is a time in which three can equal one, right? When you're talking about two distinct different things, right? You have three people in one family. Now, again, that's not God, that's not the Trinity, um, but it simply is just helping us understand that on the different sides of the math equation, we're talking about fundamentally two different things. You got persons and beings, uh, and therefore it's not a simple math equation, but it's persons and persons or beings and beings that three, one plus one plus one would equal three. Is that helpful or would you kind of describe it as a different way? Um, so I think that's helpful. Uh, the question is, what do we call what you just did? I, I think you offered um, sort of a, it's a kind of an analogy to understand a particular relationship. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I could use an analogy like, you know, how the sun, the S-U-N is both the solar disk in the sky and the light that I walk around in when I'm walking around outside and the warmth on my skin that will burn me. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, it's, it's the disk and the sun and the, and, and the light and the warmth. And yeah, those three things are one sun. Um, the thing is, um, you can use that to clarify certain relationships. Like, how is the sun both there and here at the same time? Oh, well, now we can distinguish the senses in which it's there. Um, the problem with pretending that that's sort of an analogy for what the triune God is, is that it gets you almost nowhere. Like, the triune God is not like that at all. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, the ideas we were working through um, can be clarified by sort of analogical argument. We can fire up the, the metaphorical, analogical reasoning mode of the human mind and come to clarity about certain things. That, that's a great way to work. Um, um, but that doesn't result in what people call an analogy, but what I would call sort of a conceptual model for what the Trinity is. Hmm. Um, maybe I could clarify that a little bit more by by analogy, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> by saying um, anything about God, since there's exactly one God and God is one and unique, um, any analogy is going to fall infinitely short of what God actually is. And we mostly are ready for this in most doctrines. So if I tell you that God made everything out of nothing um, and you say, well, I think I understand your claim, but could you give me an analogy for that? And I would say, well, think about what you're asking. Do you want like another example of everything being made out of nothing? What would what would that be? Because <laughs> the example I give you would have to like start from zero initial conditions and have the fundamental framework of all things simultaneously be created and concreated. Um, like, no, I can't give you two examples of the creation of everything from nothing. Um, but here's what I can give you. This morning I uh, went into the kitchen and there was no sandwich there, but in my in my foreknowledge, I knew I needed a sandwich for lunch, so I arranged materials. And at the end of that process, there was a sandwich there had where there had previously been no sandwich. 
that's a little bit like God making everything out of nothing. Right now, when I give that illustration, it would be so obvious that it's a terrible illustration. You would say, oh, yeah, I see. It's kind of like that. I mean, all yeah. you did was a simple pre-existing matter, which is precisely what God did not do in making all things. Um, <laughs> but in another sense, you made a transition from no sandwich to sandwich, which is kind of cool. And so I see how that's a teeny tiny bit like uh, creation from nothing. Yeah. That's a matter of expectation management. You weren't expecting much from me and I didn't give you much. Yeah. Right? Same so with the we... Trinity. If your expectation is really that low, then I can give you an illustration of the Trinity that's about as good as a sandwich as an illustration of the making of the universe. Yeah. So then would you just say, hey, Christians, we need to stay away from these analogies. They're, they're not helpful. Just just don't use them. Um, yeah, in general, that's more or less my message. Um, my, my overall... My, my overall approach to the doctrine of the Trinity is to connect it directly to the gospel, um, that the triunity of God and the nature of Christian salvation are tightly wired together in Christian revelation. And so if you come to understand that in the fullness of time, the Father sent his Son and they sent their spirit to work out our salvation, then you are seeing in concrete history in the biblical revelation what God is like. The eternal God always has been the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And in the fullness of time, the gospel was fulfilled in which the Father sent the Son and the Spirit. Hmm. That's the track. It's that the associative act of thinking Trinity and gospel together is the crucial thing. Yeah. So would you say that sometimes we unnecessarily make this more mysterious and more difficult to it, where it keeps us from being able to understand maybe that simplicity that you just described of the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit and the work of the gospel? I think so. Especially if, if you come to this, you sort of inherit the doctrine. Well, if you sort of inherit the doctrine as something you find that you are supposed to believe, you know, from from Christian tradition or church authority, or whatever, and then you think, well, now that I've inherited it, what do I do with it? Because um, it doesn't seem good for anything. So maybe I could use it to explain stuff or maybe I could come up with a neat analogy for it. It's that sort of felt need to think that there's something further that this must be for. And I yeah. think the way to get behind that is to say, um, yeah, we do inherit this from centuries of wise Christian teaching. It's it's a blessing that this is a shared fundamental core Christian doctrine. You know, I'm an evangelical Protestant of a Baptistic sort, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but when I'm teaching on the Trinity, I'm drawing from Presbyterians and uh, Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox and across all the centuries. I got Trinitarian friends in all 20 centuries of Christian history. Um, that's, that's a blessing that it's that much of a point of convergence of Christian teaching. Yeah. Um, but the task is as Christians living now and trying to commune with God and understand him better through his word in scripture to be able to actually see the doctrine of the Trinity in scripture so that we see it as the answer to our questions rather than as sort of an assignment that our job is to figure out why it matters and why someone gave us that assignment. Yeah, that's what I love. I think it's a uh, uh, great Kokel at Stand to Reason. He has an article that he re that he always references of the Trinity, a solution, not a problem. Uh, it's Absolutely. the answer. Um, now, what you just brought up is is see how the Trinity is in Scripture. This is one of the biggest objections is that the Trinity is not in the Bible. You know, where see the Trinity. Jesus not, did not say the Father is or the, the God is one person and three per or three, one being in three persons like Jesus didn't teach us to his disciples. It's not in Scripture. In fact, there's a time where people tried to add it into Scripture and we realized that very clear Trinitarian verse was not in the original manuscripts and was taken out. So how would you respond where you said 
see it in scripture, but the major objection is it's not in scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, the word Trinity is not in scripture. I'll certainly um, grant that. Um, um, but the, the question of um, who Jesus is and how he is related to the one who sent him is certainly a, a situation posed by scripture. Um, and so it's narrated in the gospels. Um, it's looked forward to in the old Testament. I'm, I'm convinced that the doctrine of the Trinity is um, prepared for or adumbrated in the old Testament, but it doesn't sort of all snap together with clarity until the son and spirit show up in person. Um, if you take a big picture view of the Bible, uh, it is the story of how God worked out salvation uh, in the father sending the son and the spirit so that the whole old Testament is looking forward to and prophesying and symbolizing the time when the Son and the Spirit will come to fulfill all the promises of God. Um, and the whole New Testament as a set of documents is written, of course, by the apostles after the ascension of Christ, mm -hmm. um, where they are looking back on that time when the Father sent the Son and the Spirit to work out salvation. Okay. Um, from there, it's just a matter of, of uh, cleaning things up. Now, if you if you're looking for the word, just get a concordance and turn to the T section. And that's right. The word Trinity is not there. That's a, that's yeah. a short question. Yeah. yeah, the Trinity is not there. The components are. Now, kind of going along with this idea of scripture, uh, you also have the objection that comes up of that this, this idea that was created at the Council of Nicaea. And so um, how is it that we can understand what actually happened at the Council of Nicaea in relationship to the Trinity, which is why this objection is being presented? Or is this completely, mm -hmm. you know, uh, made up? Uh, or what, what happened there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just taught a course um, in Biola's MA in classical theology um, on the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's not quite a survey of the whole history of it. It's more like masterpieces from the tradition. Um, and Nicaea is very important, uh, 325. And then the, the pro-Nicene theology of the generation after that, um, Athanasius, who lived a long time after the council, and Gregory Nazianzus, who um, um, wrote very effectively on the doctrine. Um, there's a moment of clarity around the Council of Nicaea that is uh, just really golden for Trinitarian thought. But no one at Nicaea thought this has now been revealed or now we believe something that no one believed for the last 325 years. All of them were explicitly saying, as the fathers have taught, as we read in Holy Scripture. Hmm. Um, so if someone says that no one believed in the Trinity or no one believed that the Bible taught that God is triune until the Council of Nicaea in 325. I mean, if I'm being snotty, my response to that is, oh, you know what you should read? Anything. <laughs> you know, like you should, you should actually get uh, any Christian book from before 325 um, and, and look at it. So of the 10 or 15 good options uh, from, from the pre-Nicene Christian writings, um, I, I only picked one. I could only give one week to this in my survey class. Um, I picked Tertullian, a North African theologian, uh, wrote in Carthage, had legal training um, rather than philosophical training. Tertullian's little book against Praxius uses the word Trinity. The word, tri the word tri Trinitas in Latin is that old. It's a North African Latin coinage from the second century. Um, and even uses the phrase, three persons in one substance. Now, if you think the Trinity was made up at 325 at Nicaea, you're going to have to explain to me what Brother Tertullian was doing in North Africa using the word Trinity and the formula three persons in one substance. 
you know, uh, 150 years before. So, yeah, it's too snotty to say you should read anything. Um, but it really is the case, like, just check out primary texts a century or two before Nicaea and tell me what you see. Now, here's what you will see. You're going to see Nicaea, you're going to see Tertullian saying Trinity, three persons, one substance. He's also going to say really annoying things like the sun is a portion of God. And you're going to look at that and say, all right, give me my red pen. That's that's wrong. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to mark that out. It's not going to be perfect. Um, and, you know, I just assign that as primary text to my students and we talk about it and I ask them, is the doctrine of the Trinity present as early as Tertullian? And they say, yeah, it's messed up, but it's clearly the doctrine mm -hmm. of the Trinity. Um, yeah. and then you can probe deeper. Like, why is it messed up? Well, Tertullian wasn't Platonist enough. He was like, he was stoic. And so if you asked him what spirit was, he would give you some weird answer, like very fine matter. You'd go, mm, okay, Tertullian, you, you need a little more metaphysics to be able to kind of say what you're seeing here. Yeah. Um, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. Um, so, okay. So kind of moving along a little bit is one of the big issues with people understanding the Trinity is when it comes to the person of Jesus. And I know this is a massive topic that it should be a whole show and we have a short amount of time, but um, understanding the dual nature of Christ, uh, you know, this idea that like, well, um, God can't die. How did Jesus die on the cross? God can't be hungry. Jesus got hungry. Uh, so how can we kind of begin to understand uh, this idea of Jesus being both God and man uh, at the same time? Yeah. Well, as you already said, this is a related subject, but not the same subject. So it, yeah. it raises um, a, a, some 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 issues that are uh, on the side here. Um, maybe the best connection to the Trinity is to say uh, that Nicene conflict between say Athanasius and Arius in the fourth century. Um, the charge that someone like Athanasius made was when you look at Jesus, Arius and Arians, you're taking things that he took on for our sake, right? Like the incarnation, the human nature and your uh, created status Right. He, uh, the eternal, uncreated son of God added to himself a created nature um, and submitted to God in that created nature, submitted to God, the father, um, submitted to himself in a certain sense. Right. Like the um, took on a created nature, which was under the, the divine authority of the eternal son. Um, Athanasius said, what you're doing is you're taking that condescension and attributing it to who he essentially is. Um, that's. That's one way of describing the whole problem with Arianism at, or that form of subordinationism. Um, so the classic Christian answer is, um, no, there, there are three persons in one God, and one of those persons added to himself through hypostatic union uh, a created human nature so that that one person has two natures, right? And some of this is just, you know, it works better if you draw it on the whiteboard, but... Um, yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> Uh, some of this is just a matter of keeping in mind that the person who is the son of God incarnate, who has a divine nature and a human nature, is the second person of the Trinity. And that human, that divine nature that he has is the same nature that the father and the spirit have. It's the eternal divine nature that he has in common um, with the father and the spirit in the eternity of the divine being. Um, so when you come to things like, can God die? I'm going to say this a little bit slowly, because if you hear this for the first time as an answer to the question, if God can't die, how did Jesus die? It sounds it sounds ad hoc. It sounds like I made it up on the spot to get myself out of a tight corner. 
right? Um, but in fact, no, this is the Christian doctrine of God, and this is the doctrine of the Incarnation, and here's how it works. Um, the entire Trinity worked the Incarnation, but only one person of the Trinity became incarnate. So um, Martin Luther uses the illustration of that. He says it's like two girls putting a coat on a third girl, right? They all put on the coat, but the coat is only put onto one of them, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a work of the whole Trinity, but it's only an incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. That person, um, without changing or getting rid of his divine nature, adds to himself a human nature. That human nature, as a creature, is subject to death. It is capable of suffering and change and dying. Now, when I say, and I'm willing to say, I'll even up the ante here, um, I'm willing to say God died on the cross. You know, I could, I could quote a Charles Wesley hymn, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal died." Okay, how did that happen? The Christian answer to that is, um, the second person of the Trinity in his assumed human nature truly experienced human death. Right? That, that, that is to say his body and his soul came apart um, and, and ceased their normal human functions. Um, and the son of God, whose body and soul that was by him taking it on, um, was the subject who experienced that human death. Now, when you hear it that way, you might say, um, you might have two responses. One is you might say, um, oh, just human death. Like he would have to experience divine death in order for it to really count as him dying. And that's where I'd say, oh yeah, like let's work the equation. Here's God and here's man. Here's human death. Here's humanity and here's human death. Is there on the other side of the equation, here's divinity and here's divine death? Or is divine death an incoherent concept like square circle, right? Mm -hmm. Turns out sort of, I don't know what your definition of God is, but by most definitions of God, it would exclude having a death. Yeah. Like there's no properly divine death over there. It's like dividing by zero, which means that if God is going to die, God is going to cross over and experience the only death on the market, human death. So um, when I, I can sing with Charles Wesley, the immortal died, God died. What I mean is God took to himself human nature and in that human nature experienced the only death on the market, our death. Hmm. Now, like I said, if you hear that for the first time just now, it's going to sound like I made up a bunch of distinctions to get God out of a tight spot and like, well, that's not God dying. That's like one half of one third of God having a bad weekend. That's cheating. Right. <laughs> I'm going to say, well, I'm sorry. It sounds that way, but there's an order of operations here where first you get the doctrine of God in shape. Then you get the doctrine of incarnation in shape. Then you work out what happened in the atonement. Yeah. This has to be packed the right way. And I think that's so important to point out because one of the objections I found was this idea that talked about how Trinitarian scholars just manipulate the Bible to get out of a problem. And it's similar to like, if you started speaking calculus to me, I'm not going to get it. But that doesn't mean that calculus is nonsense. It just means I don't understand. And I wish we had time to work through a lot more definitions in this interview than we have time for. And we, we don't. And so, you know, it's we, we there's ways in which we can work through it and, and explain it and discuss different things. But it might sound crazy, again, if, if we uh, don't have a, a deep understanding of these different uh, theological uh, beliefs. Um, I kind of have one more question that I want to jump to some of the questions that came in because there's a lot of questions that came in and sorry, everybody, I'm not going to be able to get to all of them. I have to run through and really hit the ones that are really on topic. Um, but would you, would you say then that this understanding that you just explained uh, about how Jesus can be God and man and, and die and God's not dying, is that also going to help us in the objection of uh, the doctrine of God says God is unchanging yet 
Jesus being God being born is a change. Is that going to also that distinction also going to help with that objection as well? Yeah, the short version of that is the doctrine of God's immutability is a statement about the divine nature. The, the nature of God does not change. Um, uh, human nature does, by definition, change. And so um, uh, the Son of God, in his human nature, um, experiences the change of that human nature. But the person himself doesn't change. He doesn't become a different person. Um, yeah. And the divine nature doesn't change. That's good. All right, so jump into the questions here in the live chat. Uh, the first one here is from Dr. Strange. Oh, that's really big. Um, was Jesus worshipped? If so, was it, uh, what is the Greek word for worship and was it used exclusively for Jesus? If so, is this a contradiction of Revelation 3 to 9? 3, 9. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think Jesus was worshipped, and you mostly can't get at this. Uh, it sounds like the questioner knows some of the ambiguity around um, Greek words like uh, proskuneo, bending of the knee. It's um, it's symbolic language. Um, uh, it's an action that you do when you worship, but of course, you also bend your knee when you tie your shoe. So it's you know it's a it's a word that's being used a particular way. Um, uh, what's the rest of the? I'm trying to kind of read between the lines here on what Doctor Strange wants to know. Um, so I don't know if this is coming from a, a Jehovah's Witness kind of perspective. I'm not saying that you are, but you know, I often hear like Jehovah's Witnesses like, "No, Jesus never accepted worship," and and the fact that we have, you know, say they they change that word of when the gospels seem to uh, suggest worship. And so, it seems like he's saying if Jesus is worshipped, and the word used for worship for Jesus is also used in Revelation three nine, which states, um, "Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews." and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And so maybe that bow down before them feet is maybe a similar word, is my guess. I don't know the Greek. Yeah, and I guess also the context there uh, in Revelation 3, who, who's being bowed down before. I, I am. So there's a lot of, a lot packed in there. Okay. I guess what I want to say here is um, uh, Larry Hurtado, who, who died just this past year, um, wrote a bunch of big jumbo books. Um, uh, one God, one Lord. He talked about the early Christian mutation of um, monotheistic worship. Um, uh, Hurtado's not always writing in an apologetic context. He's a you know biblical studies proper um, kind of an author. But I would just I would recommend his works um, for a, a good clear demonstration. My answer to the question is Jesus was worshipped. The New Testament is written as a document um, about the worship of Jesus. Okay. Uh, now, Dr. Strange had another couple questions, kind of more yes or no, so we, I just want to hit them really quick. Uh, did Moses know about the Trinity? Mm. There are um, different opinions on this, so let me kind of do the safe professorial answer and say there are four views on this. Um, uh, and there are things to be said on behalf of all of them. Um, I take the position, uh, my own view, is that Moses did not have clear revelation about the distinction of the persons. Um, so he had a lot of interesting stuff about um, the richness and fullness of God's internal life. Um, he, he knew things, uh, we can see in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, Moses knew things about um, the fact that you can't see God and live, right? He's, he's told directly that by God. Um, and also that he saw things of God or from God. Um, um, but I take the position that the doctrine of the Trinity is <laughs> um, 
not clearly made known yet in the Old Testament, but is primarily a subject of New Testament revelation. And that's because I don't think it's mainly um, uh, head knowledge or, or verbal information. It's not as if God could have at any point leaned over the ramparts of heaven and said, repeat after me, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like As a set of words, he could have taught that at any point through verbal revelation. In fact, in the history of salvation, the full the triunity of God was made fully known when the Father sent the Son and the Spirit. Um, yeah. Now, I'm, I'm looking up here at a shelf of books about the Trinity in the Old Testament. All of them use a word that I only ever see in those books, and that word is adumbration. It's, good, it's a good English word. comes from Latin, to shadow forth, ad umbra. They say the Trinity, its revelation is in the New Testament, but its adumbration is in the Old Testament. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a cool word. It sort of recognizes the fact that there's something made known there, but it's not made known fully or clearly. So the differences of opinion, differences of opinion you get among different theologians and theological traditions tends to be um, how clear, right? It's yeah. a degree question, right? Like yeah, it's that, unclear in the helpful. Old Testament, but how clear is it? Yeah, that's helpful. Awesome. Um, so if you're going to point someone to, uh, to the passages that talk about God the Son, where would you uh, find that idea? Um, yeah, so I'm looking at the question here, the idea of God the Son, um, but then God the Son is in quotes. And so I, I do want to make a distinction. The, the phrase, quote, God the Son, that set of words in that order or their Greek equivalent, um, that's, that's not in the scripture. That's, okay. that's an interpretive move, right? Um, so um, I would point to, um, gosh, where is the, the eternal sonhood of Christ taught in the uh, uh, New Testament? Um, I take Hebrews to be teaching um, the eternal generation of the Son, both when it talks about its use of Psalm 2, uh, Thou art my Son, this day I have begotten you. That this day language, if you know from reading Hebrews, um, is about an eternal today, right? So like today, if you hear his voice, refers to at least four different time periods. Like those are all today. Um, and I think the, the way that Hebrews uses Psalm 2 is pointing to the eternity of the beginning of the sun. Um, Hebrews is also pointing to the doctrine, what I would call the doctrine of eternal generation, when it calls the the sun in chapter one, um, the um, the splendor of the glory of God. Okay. Yeah. God made everything yeah. through his son. Who is the splendor of his glory? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Renaissance Q&A, uh, hosted by Krishnam, uh, quite, uh, wrote in and said, uh, what is a good resource or book that gives the best explanation for the Trinity? Um, gosh, there are a bunch. There's a brand new one by um, Scott Swain called The Trinity, An Introduction. That's in Crossway's um, Short Studies in Systematic Theology series. That's about 100 pages. Um, uh, my book, The Deep Things of God, is kind of an, ex an experiential evangelical um, introduction to it. Uh, my book doesn't do enough biblical work. So if, if, if you're looking for something that really connects the dots for you biblically, I would recommend Swain's book. Mike Reeves, Michael Reeves' book is called um, Delighting in the Trinity. That's a really good one. And if you're ready for a bunch more information, like a 500-page but still accessible thing, I would get Robert Lethem's book, The Holy Trinity. What's the full title? The Holy Trinity in Scripture, History, Theology, and Worship. Okay. Wonderful. Appreciate that. Um, Evan wrote in and said, uh, if you deny the Trinity, is it still possible to be a believer in God? Um, 
Well, yeah, I'm just looking at the structure of that sentence. You, there are certainly theists who deny the Trinity. So if that's what you mean by a believer in God, there is um, merely monotheistic, non-Trinitarian theism out there. Um, it's really a question of how wrong you can be and still have accurate knowledge of God. Um, so I would have to ask, I would have to ask, what do you mean you deny the Trinity? Um, is it Hank Hanegraaff on the Bible Answer Man always used to take, like, every day he would take callers through this round of questions, like, oh, you don't believe in the Trinity, so you don't believe there's one God? Oh, you don't believe the Father's God? Oh, you don't believe the Son's God? Oh, you think the Father is the Son? And if the person got all the right answers to those questions, he'd say, well, congratulations, you believe in the Trinity, just for <laughs> some reason you keep saying you don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, or if it's, or if someone gets the wrong answers on those questions, then I'd want to say, so you think Jesus is the Father? Um, that's a messed up belief. Like, I mean, how, how well do you read the Bible? Where, where are you seeing that? Yeah. Um, I know people who heard the message of the gospel in churches that taught false doctrine with regard to the Trinity. Who then they, I would say they got saved, they started reading the Bible. They struggled under an unbiblical doctrine of God and eventually got out from under it and um, embraced the true doctrine of God. And if you ask those people, so when were you saved? Like, when, when did you begin to believe in the true God? They would say, I mean, I believed in the true God a long time ago, but it was a mess because I also affirmed unbiblical things about him. Yeah. So I think it's just important to like, you know, how far is it like, hey, I, I have a mistaken view versus I'm like denying Jesus as God, right, it is how far, you know, it really gets taken. Um, yeah. The same question came in twice. Um, uh, Tyler asked it here. I'll put that there. And then it also came in on Instagram. Um, you know, uh, when Jesus prayed to God, who did he pray to? So if he's God, is he talking to himself? Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so think about it this way. Uh, the main answer is you can tell from what he says that he's that the son is talking to the father there, right? Um, like we have we have the script, we have uh, reportage of the words of some of Jesus's prayers, and they um, include the word father. Um, so the son is talking to the father. Now the question about Jesus in human form is interesting. I mean, that's worth. There's something deep going on there. Um, you might see the incarnate son talking to the father and say, wow, I'm seeing Trinitarian conversation happen. I'm seeing the son and the father communicate and converse. That's, that's amazing that that's what's being shown to me here in the incarnation. And then you might ask, I wonder if the eternal son prays to the eternal father. And by eternal, I mean like, imagine the incarnation had never happened. Um, imagine creation had never happened. Imagine there was nothing but the one God, father, son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a relation going on between the father and the son. Would you call that prayer? And I would want to say, no, it turns out that'd be weird to call that prayer, wouldn't it? There'd be like fellowship, communion, love, exchange of, you know, exchange of whatever that is, like whatever this perfect interpersonal communion is between father and son. That's what's going on. That kind of reveals to you. It shows you that prayer is actually a human thing. Like prayer is the verbal script of a proper relation of a, of a created human to God. And so what you have is the eternal second of the pers person of the Trinity steps into that created human role. 
Hmm. Um, and he is acting out. He is enacting, maybe is a better uh, way to put that, because it makes it sound fake if you say acting out. Or acting out. Um, he is enacting the proper created human relationship to the one God. You could say, and I think Augustine even will is willing to say in a couple places, in one sense, he is praying to himself. In one sense, what you have there is a man talking to the divine reality. Um, but it's kind of a messed up way to put it, because very obviously the main thing you have there is the son talking to the father. Yeah. He's just doing it in his human nature, which means it's taking the form of prayer. Yeah. But if you wanted to say, like, the eternal son prays to the eternal father, you'd want to say something like, this is a, com this is a mouthful, but it's like, the eternal son always by nature does towards the father what in human form will show up as prayer. Hmm. That's very helpful to think through. I appreciate that. Um, next question came in. Um, why did God have to have the Trinity instead of two? I've also heard this is like, is there any special number of three? Why, why not five persons in one being uh, or two persons? Yeah. Why not just father and, and, and uh, son? Um, why three? Is that a, is that an yeah. important point? Um, it is. And, and this is kind of the difference between um, the Trinity as a revealed doctrine, um, which is the true position, and the Trinity is something that people, Trinity is something that people could have thought up on their own by discerning the true nature of reality from general revelation. You know, I grew up on Schoolhouse Rock and learned that three is a magic number. Um, uh, maybe three is a magic number, but it turns out that's not really helpful for thinking about the Trinity. Like, the magic number three is not the master key that unlocks what's going on in the relation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, the main reason uh, that we affirm God as three instead of two or four or something like that uh, is, is revelation. Um, that, that God is one uh, essence subsisting in three persons. Um, and you can read the Bible front to back and sideways and upside down all the ways you want it there aren't a lot of candidates running around in there for inclusion among the persons of the Godhead. Right. So you could try to leave out the Holy spirit. There are times when the Holy spirit is a person who behaves impersonally. Right. So you might occasionally, you know, see that and say, what if I tried to be consistent and just demote the spirit from personhood and say, it's really father and son, like a Benity plus a force that emanates from them. Um, uh, you're just going to run into verses that make that impossible, right? The, the spirit as a personal presence is more clearly witnessed in scripture. You know, don't grieve the spirit, spirit indwells, the spirit groans, the spirit says, set aside for me, Paul and Barnabas. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. Um, all right. So we only have just a couple minutes left. So sorry, everybody. I do have to stop with the questions there. I do appreciate you asking so many. Hopefully we can cover those maybe on a later show. I am thinking about doing a call-in show where you can actually join in and ask questions and we can have conversations. So that may be coming up in a few weeks. Be on the lookout for that. Um, but I want to end with the the practical. Um, so, so okay, we have a better understanding of the Trinity. How does that affect us? How, how should we... Um, you know, as we live this out, not only just defending it and making sure people are theologically accurate in their statements and in their prayers and what they teach and, and whatnot, um, what how what should this do to us in, in our reflection to who God is? Yeah, thanks. Th this is the payoff of, of my strategy of teaching the doctrine of the Trinity by forming associations between it and the gospel. So rather than just we could do a here reverse, there reverse. I could demonstrate to you the fact that there is one God. These three are each God. They are not each other. We could kind of assemble the doctrine of the Trinity that way. 
And then your very next question would be, why does that matter? But if our way into the doctrine of the Trinity is to say, in the fullness of time, God made known his triune identity uh, when the Father sent the Son and Holy Spirit. The Father sending the Son and Holy Spirit is the gospel. Mm -hmm. And then my uh, salvation, my experience of the gospel um, also has to do with um, the Father adopting me, um, the Son redeeming me, the Spirit dwelling within me. Um, and then you can go back and work in all of those ways like, oh, the Father adopted me by the Son in the spirit of adoption. And Jesus redeemed me by offering himself to God through the eternal spirit. And the spirit indwells in me by being sent by the Father and the Son to make the Father and the Son present. So there's like triads inside of triads there as the one trinity works this whole thing out. It's sort of already relevant um, if you follow the path of getting there through a deeper understanding of the gospel. Yeah. And I also hear, I mean, just with it, the gospel and, and God and who God is, uh, the Trinity also is is very um, helpful, right? We talked about solution, not a problem. You know, it's it's uh, it's an answer uh, when understanding the love of God. And you often hear this compared against a Muslim view of God and being strict monotheism. So how is it that a Trinitarian monotheism uh, is important for understanding some of the attributes of God, like him being eternally and essentially loving? Yeah, um, there's a certain kind of interpersonal love that if it weren't for the Trinitarian reality of God's life, we would just have to say, it, it would be sort of a problem to be solved still. We would say something like, it's clear to me from the Old Testament that God loves the world and loves his people and doesn't change in doing so. He doesn't go from like, well, once I was a loveless God, but then I decided to love the world and then I was full of love. And that was a big moment in my life. I really changed a lot and matured as God when that happened. <laughs> but you'd have to say, well, that's not the case. And yet God has always had within himself this resource of love that was somehow only actualized once there was a creature. That that doesn't seem right. But anyway, these things I'm affirming must be true. I just don't know how to relate them. Um, yeah. Whereas when you get to the fullness of the of the New Testament revelation, you can say, oh, um, this is actually how God is love from all eternity. There are, yeah. I can now specify the resources within the divine life according to which God is eternally love. Wow. Well, I know that there's so much more that we could have done and talked about and analogies that could be brought up and questions to be answered. But Dr. Sanders, thank you so much for spending this hour with us to help us gain a better understanding of who God is, because as we talked about at the beginning, there's nothing more important for us to think about. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you, Ryan. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Uh, just again, so you know, coming up in the future here in just a little bit is uh, an interview next week is going to be on uh, divisiveness of our culture um, uh, with um, David French. And then maybe in two weeks, a call-in show. I don't know. I'm still working through those details, but I hope this has helped you. As again, uh, there's nothing more important to think about than who God is to accurately represent him to the world as we are his ambassadors. So I hope this conversation has helped you, caused you to think deeper about this issue. Great resources that were mentioned there as well. And the, all the links for Dr. Sanders, his blog, his website, and his books are down in the description below. You can check out there. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day um, and a great week coming up on Christmas season. So guys, uh, just have a blessed rest of your time. Again, keep thinking deeply because Christianity, God, and Jesus are worth thinking about. Thank you, everybody. See you uh, next week. Bye.